Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week, we're going to delve into a subject which I'm intrigued to find out more about from Heather. She suggested the subject based on a couple of personal experiences. And the subject we're going to talk about is customer service. So, Heather, there's a story behind this, isn't there? And you haven't told it to me yet, and I can't wait to hear. What is your customer service story? Well, there are two, but the main one and the main reason why I thought it would be good to talk about this is recently I ordered some flowers online um, for delivery for a 21st birthday at an address in another county and I'd asked for them to be delivered on a specific day because that was the day of the 21st birthday and you know what it's like when you send something to somebody especially flowers you know you usually get a message saying oh thank you for the flowers and the young lady that I was sending them to there's no way that she wouldn't have messaged me so I thought I'll just contact the company and see whether or not they've been delivered and they haven't told me they'd had a problem with their uh, flower delivery due to COVID-19, but they had, um, that they were sending the next day an upgraded order, right? Fantastic. So I left it at that. And I thought just at the end of the following day, I'll just double check, did the flowers arrive? So I contacted them and just to confirm that the flowers were delivered today. Uh, no, the courier could, no, they replied the next day, courier couldn't find them. Anyway, we go on like this, the courier can't find the house. The courier can't find the house. Finally, we get to a point where it's Thursday. These were meant to be delivered on the Monday. It's now Thursday. And they said, um, if you give us some directions, we can deliver them tomorrow. And I said, well, to be honest, the moment's passed. So they, um, long story short, I said, I'd like a refund, please. You can't have a refund. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, I phoned and spoke to customer service. They hung up on me. Um, I sent them an email. Uh, and in the end, we got to a stage where I had to send. It got to the point where I didn't really care about the flowers anymore. It was the principle of the level of customer service I was receiving. I had to send a picture to prove that the house name was on the outside of the house. <laughs> and that it was visible from the road. And that the house name had been formally changed to that. So, of course, yeah, I, I, so then they get the long email. Um, long and short of it, eventually they give me a refund. But it was the fact that they were arguing with me about the fact that their courier couldn't find the address. And it was like, well, that's not actually my problem. My contract's with you, your contract is with the courier. Uh, and by the way, the courier bit is only £7.50 of the overall cost of the flowers, which was a significant amount of money. So it got me thinking about customer service and how how in in the, they deliver flowers. That's what they do. So how difficult can it be? You know, they must have come across these sort of situations before. And yes, um, most people order flowers to be delivered on a specific day. That's normally quite an important part of absolutely and the service that you're paying for. So it doesn't seem like it would be an unusual situation. So no. presumably no. they've had all sorts of problems in the past, you would imagine. 
you would imagine when uh, when we were at one stage talking about a refund they said that i could have a voucher a credit voucher that i could use and i said well i'm not going to use your services again am i because not only did you, did you fail to deliver you're now being antsy with me you know and i think from a customer's point of view nobody you, you i know the customer isn't always right but i don't want people being chippy with me and from a business point of view the guy who owned the business because of course i was all over this like secret squirrel trying to find out who owned the business and who i needed to speak to probably had no idea that the people who were dealing with me were behaving in this sort of way it got escalated to him and of course i got a refund but i'll never use that company again i'll i'll you know i'll tell people don't use that company again um and it, it just really got me thinking about when you start arguing back with your customer that's that's you, you you've you've ruined your credibility as as an organization that person's ever going to deal with again especially nowadays with social media is that it's a lot more public isn't it these yeah. sorts of things aren't just passed from mouth to mouth um, when you yeah. see a friend they're up there on social media before you know it and everybody knows about it and that mishandling of your call can suddenly become viral can't it and yeah. and then it goes on to see how you can manage your social media as well so if you can't manage well, a customer one-to-one -one, I, I dread to think what their social media would be like absolutely i didn't resort to that because i decided that i i well i was up for the fight in the end <laughs> which is always unfortunate, you know, if I get to that stage. But it, it got me thinking about the the life cycle, you know, the customer life cycle and how, you know, somebody identifies that they need something and, and then they might find your business in order to, um, to, to buy it. So they, I need something, who can provide it for me? Okay, I'll make an approach with them and think about making an order. I'll place the order, then, I'm a satisfied customer and then I become an advocate for your business. So every customer has the potential to generate more, more revenue. It's not just a one hit wonder. And I think sometimes at any point within that, that cycle, if you get it right. So the ideal would have been, I had something similar happen with flowers again, more locally, and it, they were delivered to the wrong house. The next day, the lady said she was absolutely mortified and she said, I'm sending out flowers and they'll be delivered to the correct house and they arrived the next day. And there was no question of it was my fault or um, oh, we're not going to get money back from the courier or I don't really care about that. So anyway, have you got any customer service nightmares or any customer service advice that you would give, Tracy? I think uh, one of the big takeaways from this is, although the customer isn't always right, you have to proceed with caution if you're going to challenge them. You know, don't argue with your customer. Sometimes just being honest and saying, holding up your hands and saying, I'm really sorry, you know, can we do something to help? How do you deal with a customer? Even if you know they aren't right, how do you deal with them as if they are right? And I think you really need to take that sort of approach because even if they aren't right, it's not going to do you any favours by pointing that out to them, you know. No, in no. polite way, but you know, you could you could sort of deal diffuse the situation rather than escalate it. 
And what we also have to remember is that customer service doesn't only exist when there is a problem. A lot of organisations, we have repeat customers. So it's how you nurture that relationship and, and keep engaged with them. And you know, don't only get in touch when there's a problem. Keep in touch with them. I mean, I've been keeping in touch with clients throughout the whole COVID thing. I've not been in a position to deliver training for them, but I've been keeping in touch with them because that is customer service. How are you? How are you doing? Anything I can help with? Not in terms of selling them business, but you know, how are things? Yeah. Uh, and I, th I think that's really important. There's a couple of quite well-known stories about um, when businesses have done really good things. And the, there's one in particular, Sainsbury's, a little girl, a three-year-old girl. I don't know if she was three-year-old, but she wrote and said, why is tiger bread called tiger bread? Uh, because she said that it doesn't really look like a tiger. It looks like a giraffe. So apparently customer service responded saying, yeah, that's a really good idea. We will rename our tiger bread giraffe bread. And lo and behold, um, it became called giraffe bread. And that he sent a little gift card um, so that she could go and get some sweets or whatever it was that she wanted to get from Sainsbury's. Really positive publicity. Went, you know, went viral around the Internet. So simple, cost nothing, really good customer service. You could just say, OK, that's a nice letter from a kid, isn't it funny? They took it to another level. Another example that I picked up on that's related to, to the customer service and COVID in particular, and that's um, an article in Inc.com uh, that talked about... Um, how Apple is emailing out people who've, who've purchased new Apple products. So um, this was a MacBook, I think, somebody had bought. And this isn't responding to a problem. It's not you know, responding to a complaint. They've just built this into their business model now so that as soon as they've got notification that somebody's new computer has been delivered, they're sending out an email which says, welcome to your new computer. And Brilliant. then it takes them through the customer experience online as opposed to um, doing it in the Apple shop. The, how it was explained was that normally with your new product, you'd have talked it through with a consultant at the Apple shop. But because all the Apple shops were closed, they decided to set up this automated email. And it, it's, it was just an example of how to delight your customers. That's what it was explained. So customer service, like you say, doesn't always have to be in response to a complaint or, or even something extraordinary. It could be how you build it into your existing business model. How can we up our game in terms of customer service? just automatically you know an automatic automated email that was just timed to arrive at the perfect time I, I, I really like that idea yeah and what what that demonstrates and you would expect it from apple wouldn't you they totally understand this customer journey the the process that that customer goes through so they were able to identify at which stage due to covid there there was a gap now and then they figured out how to plug that gap. That's about knowing what's going on with your customers so that every transaction is informed. It's not accidental. And I think that you'd expect them to be brilliant at it. And they clearly are. I just got one other thing to add here. And this is um, a story about Zappos, uh, the online retailer. Um, apparently, they personally reply to every email that gets sent, even if it's to the boss of the company. 
they will get a response. And one example that I read about was where um, somebody had emailed the head of the company. He was a bit busy, but somebody had one of his assistants. He said, and I think she described herself as Molly, the shortest of the assistants. So it's a really personable sort of email. <laughs> he's really busy at the moment, but he's asked me to respond to you, and I'm, you know, and, and really personal email, which I think they've made that commitment. That's part of their business plan. Their business model is that they will personally respond to emails, and I think that you know it's another example of thinking about the whole customer journey and the customer experience. So I, I think there's some learning for your florists uh, to do, but they probably won't be listening because they weren't listening to their customer. They're probably not going to listen to your feedback, are they? No, so no. I, I think perhaps they may be a lost cause, sadly. <laughs> well, as I say, that's why I didn't want a, a credit voucher from them because sure as eggs is eggs, I won't be using them again for, for flowers or for anything, in fact. You're listening to the business community on Callan FM and now I'm going to tell you about a survey about lying and I'm not going to lie about this one. However, 49% of people surveyed recently by Glassdoor have admitted to lying at work. So 44% of those said they did it to avoid getting into trouble and 34% lied to hide mistakes. They also found that um, quite a lot of people said they lied so as to not stand out in the office and 40% said they lied at work because it was easier to agree with the majority and 24% said they lied because their boss or colleagues did not like to hear their diverse opinions. Ooh. And this is interesting. Um, and I'll see what you think about this one, Heather. 17% said they'd lied at work because they did not like giving honest feedback to colleagues. Now, it's all the rage, isn't it? 360 degree feedback and all that and, and peer <laughs> reviews. But it can be quite difficult to give and to receive that feedback. So I'm surprised it's not more than 17% actually. Well, they're just the people who are giving an honest answer. <laughs> or not <laughs> well that's a very good point if you're out if you're doing a survey about lying at work and so many people have admitted to it how many people are lying about not having lied oh. exactly oh, exactly or about their reason why yeah yeah but the poll found that 22 percent of employees thought that lying at work was acceptable and 39 percent felt that lying was commonplace where they worked Oh. 75% believed that saying what they really thought could get them into trouble and 56% of people admitted to hiding their true feelings at work which is worrying for me from like a mental health point of view or you know just a, a general sense of well-being if you've got to hide your feelings that's a long day at work isn't it it is it is and and of course that's just one part of the culture then within that organization which is probably not terribly healthy so uh yeah you should be able to challenge and 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 you know say what you think um without fear of any repercussions so mm, interesting so, stuff so clearly some cultural issues there and also the question is what is it okay to lie about 
Is it okay to lie that you've made a mistake? Is it okay to lie because you want to keep the peace? What's a white mm -hmm. lie? What's an acceptable mm -hmm. lie? Not quite, it's quite a broad thing to say, isn't it? Have you mm -hmm. ever lied at yeah. work? Yeah, so yes. What are you doing tonight? Yeah. And you say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a fabulous evening planned. And you stay in and eat crisps with your cats or something. So yeah. <laughs> does that matter in the workplace whereas lying about something that you have or haven't done can have serious repercussions so mm. i'm not mm. quite sure where they draw the line with it just to finish off on this section according to the survey 75 percent of employees said they valued authenticity at work which is by far the biggest number of, of all of that survey uh, but only half felt that their employer valued this amongst the workers and that's not necessarily true, but their employees felt that their employees employees um, weren't valued for their authenticity. So and that's really interesting. And I'd be um, be interested to see what the questions were actually, and then delve into it a little bit deeper. Um, but yeah, I just have to think about that yourself and see what is a, an acceptable lie in the world. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I've got a story that was in the Evening Standard. We've had a couple of weeks off, and it, but it was in the Evening Standard um, a, about two weeks ago, I think it was. And it's something that it just caught my eye because I've never come across this term before. And the term is turnover-based rent. So apparently, um, as we know, and I've talked about on many occasions on this on this show, during COVID, lots of challenges around landlords payment of rent protection on eviction bailiffs all of those types of things um, this plan that a number of companies have started to look at uh, to prevent this mass exodus from commercial property as much as anything is looking at a model which where you pay your rent based on your turnover uh, so if your sales perform well you pay more rent uh, if if so if you have rubbish footfall outside your shop for argument's sake that's going to influence potentially your sales therefore it's not a prime retail location anymore is it um and so apparently they um they have existed around fixed leases and so there are various different ways of doing it but it's something i've never come across and uh, the, the main element is that it, when trading is hard, rents are less. And when times are good, the landlord gets more. Uh, and I just thought it was a really interesting idea, something that I, I'd never even considered. And it, it does to me sound like something that could have some traction, particularly in retail, uh, perhaps not so, you know, with offices, etc. But it, as I say, it's very tangible, isn't it? If nobody's walking past your shop, that is not a prime retail outlet. Uh, how they square it then with on, online sales and offline sales, I don't know. But just something interesting. Have you come across it before, Tracy? It's no, absolutely. Well, given all the talk um, there's been about the high street at the moment, um, and, and we were talking a couple of weeks ago about commercial property, then that, I think new ideas are needed. So I, I don't, in fact, I don't even know if this is a new idea, but it's new to me as well. And I, I yeah. think 
it would be something I'd, I'd be interested to follow this story actually and see if it um, takes off anywhere. Mm, mm. Another interesting one, again, going back to the high street, uh, the BBC ran a story about Selfridges and uh, as part of their sustainable fashion uh, campaign, they are going to start offering clothing rental. Oh, yeah, that's where, as you might guess, that's where you basically rent clothes. So for ages, people have rented suits for weddings, you know, like morning dress. Wedding dresses have been rented. Mother of the bride, you know, that sort of formal wear. We kind of accept that that's, that's something, you know, you can rent a pair of shoes if you want. But this is actually um, is much more day to day. And apparently in China and in the US, um, this has been happening. There was an organization in New York um, set up in 2009 and they would lease designer clothing, you know, these high price tag clothes that most of us um, probably couldn't or wouldn't want to spend our money on. Um, then you also get, um, there's repair, obviously, if, if it's damaged and they have a pricing structure about what you might what you might need to pay uh, to repair things, but you can rent for four days, eight days, 10 days or 20 days. And what this is trying to combat is those people who buy cheap clothing and basically treat it as disposable fashion. The idea of, you know, going, buying something on a Saturday and wearing it out on a Saturday night. Uh, and then all oh, I've already worn that because the pressure to not be wearing the same things and all of that um, has really ramped up. So apparently it's not a PR stunt. It's it's actually something that that is happening um, and they're looking to build on it. So would you would you be up for renting? Yeah, to wear, Tracy? I definitely would. I, th I do think that sometimes you just get fed up with the clothes that you've got, don't you? Mm. And if they're not worn out, it does feel a little bit extravagant to just want to get something else to replace that. Um, I, I've never been at the cutting edge of fashion, I've got to admit. So my reason for wanting to change it is not to, to be fashionable, but more to do with I just get bored with the clothes I've got. And, yeah. You know, just nice to update your wardrobe every so often. So I think that's a great way to do it. It's Yeah, it's just taking from the, you know, hiring a prom dress, hiring a wedding dress, hiring a morning suit or whatever, and making it a bit more every day. And I think that, um, I think it'll be an interesting, I mean, Selfridges is quite high end. Let's make, make, make no bones about that. But who's to say that it, it won't cascade down through to more affordable fashion anyway? Who knows? Well, I've got another story here. Um, and it's about sustainability. But it was announced on Monday that we're going to be starting, I say we, the UK is going to be starting a consultation process on a potential new law. So this consultation period runs for six weeks. And the idea is that the new law will force big companies to clean up their supply chains. And this is specifically to do with products grown on illegally deforested land. So under the new legislation that is, is under consultation, larger companies which are operating in Britain will need to show that any commodities they use in their supply chain, such as cocoa, rubber, soy and palm oil, are produced in accordance with local laws. 
or they'll face a fine under this new legislation. And the law is, is there to help deter the destruction of rainforests. And uh, although a lot of big companies have got sustainable sourcing policies in place, this legislation is just looking to, to beef up the, um, the legal requirements around it. So again, I'll, I shall follow that. That's a six week um, consultation progress. So process, so I'll try and find out what happens in six weeks time with that. Okay, just sticking with this, the sustainability thing, which seems to be um, a bit of a theme this week. Brewdog, you know, the beer, you know, those fantastic cans, and we've talked about them um, in the past, and, we, and we've taken a look at the organisation. Brewdog has committed that it is going to be not carbon neutral, carbon negative by uh, 2022. They're looking very much at their sustainability report, which has been published, um, was published uh, last week. Uh, they say that they are going to remove twice as much carbon from the air each year as it emits. And they're working through year by year and they've, they've purchased land um, in various places uh, which is currently being used as grazing land and then they're going to plant trees to restore peatlands and a lot of that's happening up in Scotland so um, yeah so watch this space with Brewdog I mean they're in the press every week they're doing well, something they're aren't in the they? Press this week as well actually so this caught my eye this week um, they, they've had a little bit of a twitter spat with Aldi uh, now, I haven't seen this product in Aldi, but apparently their anti-establishment IPA does bear rather more than just a passing resemblance to Brewdog's Punk IPA cans. And they had a little bit of a spat online on Twitter and uh, Brewdog's response is beautiful as ever. They've mocked up some cans where they're doing um, a brand called Brewdog Aldi IPA, <laughs> Aldi PA, <laughs> sorry. Um, it, it's very um, rather lovely can. It's very clearly um, the Aldi colours. I don't know whether they will actually go ahead and uh, produce this. Um, I think they've called it Yaldi actually. Uh, whether they will actually go ahead and pr produce it. But it's another classic marketing response uh, to something that's happening and well done to Brewdog for that one. <laughs> You're listening to the business community on Calon FM. In our discovery section this week, I've um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, gone a little bit tongue in cheek here because I came across an article uh, that I thought that caught my eye and then I investigated a little bit more and I found an app. And the article was about working from home, which has been the subject that, you know, dominated, um, dominated our shows a lot this year because we're all doing it. Um, but this is an app called MyNoise.net. And this is, it's a random noise generator. And it has a number of different things that you could listen to so maybe if you're feeling tired at the end of the day you could listen to the calming sound of the ocean or you could listen to a tibetan choir or you could listen to a walk in the in the woods or if you're at work you could listen to a calm office 
And the calm office um, element is basically, it's just got some background noise of the type of noise that you would hear in the office. So there might be, and, and you can go in and you can set different things. So you can have the coffee percolator going, you can have the photocopier or the printer going, um, you can have a fan, you can have tap, 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 tap um, on keyboards, uh, you can have some mumbled voices in the background, people on the phone. And I did try it. And the article that mentioned it was talking about this guy has been using it and he feels that it makes him more productive because he doesn't feel like he's working in this sort of void. Uh, and I just thought it's a bit of fun, but actually there might be some there might be some good point to it. So um, so I have tried it a little bit and it is quite soothing to be to to just have this noise going on. I, I work in my office, I sit on my own. Um, if I'm not in a meeting or on the phone, uh, it can be it can be quite pleasant. But um, but then of course from the mindfulness point of view and from from the um, relaxing and being stressed out point of view, then there's some other stuff. And you can buy all sorts. I mean there's there's some some that are a bit bonkers, um, like um, warp speed. <laughs> Don't know what that's all about um a beat machine or just or the sound of the rain which we don't need um at the moment or, or or just white noise just just something that's just shushing in the background so mynoise.net the calm office app give it a try um and see if it makes you more productive just a bit of fun and it's free well my discovery seems a little bit lame in comparison to that but surely not this, <laughs> this is something that i uh, was pointed out to me i was preparing for um a workshop i was facilitating a few weeks ago um a colleague passed it on to me and it just seemed to fit the world at the moment it seemed like the perfect thing to use you know sometimes where a resource just comes along and you go yes i'm going to grab that because i i really see how this works and and it's basically an acronym that's all it is v-u-c-a vuca that's how i'm pronouncing it i've never heard anybody else pronounce it v-u-c-a and the v stands for volatility u is for uncertainty C is for complexity and A is for ambiguity. And it was first used in 1987, drawing on the leadership theories of Benis and Nanos. And it was used to describe or reflect on the volatility, uncertainty, complexity of general conditions and situations. But as a lot of these tools are, it was used um, by the US Army. Um, to talk about volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous situations during the Cold War. But more frequently, it has been used, uh, not during the Cold War, because it's post-1987, the aftermath of the Cold War, sorry. And it's been more frequently used from the early 2000s in business. And it's been starting to um, be as a, a tool for strategic leadership. And the sort of things that you need to apply um, to your strategic thinking. And I actually thought right now we couldn't have had a year with more VUCA in it than ever before. Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. We've got it by the bucket load, haven't we? And it just felt like this fell on my lap 
right at the right moment because it was justifying a certain type of approach to strategic leadership that I was trying to get across and it was ready-made for me it was absolutely perfect and there's loads of lovely stuff online some people have done some really nice visuals around it and it talks about um, on one particular website which I need to give some um, credit to qaspire or qaspire.com uh, Tan May Vore has done a lovely visual which I actually used in the workshop and it talks about leadership in a VUCA world and about the mindset and the skills that you need in order to thrive so um, and I don't think anybody could argue with any of this and how the companies that have actually had this mindset have thrived during this VUCA year that's a really good way to describe <laughs> 2020 begins with a V V-U-C-A so the mindset and skills to thrive in this type of world are uh, to develop an adaptive mindset, to have vision, to embrace an abundance mindset, weave ecosystems for human engagement, anticipate and create change, be self-aware, be an agile learner, network and collaborate, relentlessly focus on the customer, develop people, design for the future, and constantly clarify and communicate. Now, some of that might seem flipping obvious, you know, as, as to how you should be a leader. But I think that when you actually put it in the context of how are you going to handle volatility, the nature and the dynamics of change, and the nature and the speed of change, and the uncertainty, the lack of predictability, the potential for surprise which we've had plenty of this year and complexity multiple forces um with you know what's cause what's effect is there any link between all of these and the confusion that surrounds it all and then just the haziness of reality and i think it brings it into sharp relief when you go right all of these things that i've just talked about you're going to need all of those to deal with a world that is volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. But after I'd done the workshop and after I'd used this tool, I actually discovered um, a progression. It's called VUCA 2.0. And it was developed by uh, a chap called Bill George, who's a senior fellow at Harvard Business School. And he, he argues that VUCA calls for a leadership response, which he calls VUCA 2.0, which is vision, understanding courage and adaptability mm. you know it sums up for me in four letters of what makes really good leadership and it gives the reason for it as well you know it's like the world's a bit awful at the moment these are the things that you're facing that you can face again and these are the types of things that you need to be developing in yourself as a leader or a leadership team in order to thrive so that's my little discovery this year uh, this year <laughs> this week and that's uh, VUCA world and VUCA 2.0 on the business community this week we're going to be profiling a gentleman called Mark Constantine now this is a gentleman who I actually became aware of way back in 1994, would you believe? I was one of the customers of one of his earlier businesses, Cosmetics To Go. Now, this business only lasted for a year or so. So the fact that I managed to be a regular customer of them, customer of them actually surprised me when I look back and I, and I saw how 
shorter period that they existed, which was a, it was basically a direct male version of what is now Lush. And they, they made all their products and their, their products were absolutely lovely. But clearly um, they ran into problems because they went bankrupt in 1994 and said that the reason was that they priced their products too cheaply. So Mark Constantine and his wife Mo founded Lush. And that is really the reason why we're profiling him today. Also, um, because he's in the Sunday Times Rich List 2019 and 2020, although a little bit of a dip in 2020, but I suspect there's a few people that have dipped a bit in 2020. Mm. Had you heard of Mark Constantine before? Were you a customer of Cosmetics To Go or any of his other earlier businesses? I had heard of Cosmetics To Go, but never bought anything from them. He was involved with Anita Roddick at the body shop in the early days. And I did used to buy a lot of stuff from the body shop in the early days. Um, I only buy occasional stuff from them now. Um, I'm very familiar with Lush, not least because it's very difficult to be within 500 yards of a Lush shop and not be able to smell it because the fragrance and aroma wafts out into the high street and you kind of go, mm, there's a Lush shop around here somewhere. Uh, I remember going to Lush in Covent Garden many, many years ago and, um, and it looked like a deli. The way that it, there were these beautiful refrigerated cabinets, like you would get chocolates in Thornton's in or, 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 or stuff in a delicatessen. And there were slices of, of um, soap and you know, all of these, you'd be like, oh my goodness. You know, it was almost like an olive bar that was full of little bath bombs. They invented the bath bomb. Um, and it, it was just very, very different, very different. But I think now, um, I'd kind of lost touch with the fact that it's actually all um, vegan, animal friendly, because, and I think that's partly because I really struggle with the smell to think that that isn't anything other than synthetic, but I think it's just an explosion of all the flavours and, and um, aromas. Mr. Constantine likes to wear a loud shirt, uh, so he's quite a colourful character in himself. But I actually really like him. I've seen a couple of interviews that he's given, um, some reported in, in newsprint and some actually on video. And he just seems like a really down to earth kind of guy. He was talking about what happened, um, what's been happening this year. And, you know, his, his language is choice. Um, but basically he says, look, I'm cheesed off. All my shops are closed. You know, it's it's tough, and and along with everybody else, it, it's it, it's blooming annoying, you know. And and I can't wait to be able to get get shops open again, find ways to to trade again. And one of the things that they did do was they were offering free hand washing, so you could walk into a Lush store and wash your hands. So that on any high street, there was always somewhere where you could go and thoroughly wash your hands. So there were little things that he's, he's tried to do to um, demonstrate that they're good guys. Uh, and, and that's certainly when I hear him talk. Of course, he's very wealthy. He's very successful. But that doesn't mean he can't be a decent guy. And I kind of think he is. 
what what did you find out about him Tracy? Yeah I I got to admit I'd lost touch with the fact that Lush was an ethical company because it's so beautifully branded you sort of assume it's just one of the biggies. One of the things that I was really pleased to see is that one tenth of Lush is actually owned by the staff and they're yeah. aiming to make that eventually 35%. So I'd sort of lost a connection with that. I knew that cosmetics to go would come from a very ethical and natural background. And um, yeah, almost until I'd done this research, it was like, yeah, Lush, Lush is there, isn't it? It's mm. a, an ethical approach to capitalism, which was referred to in an article I read um, from The Guardian in February. In this article, it says that Constantine is perplexed that his ethical approach to capitalism is not bearing fruit. Now, this, bear in mind, was right at the start of COVID, before lockdown. Um, but he said in this article that a perfect situation for me would be make a profit, pay your tax, give plenty to charity and make sure you're paying a proper living wage. He then went on to say that I'm not really getting on very well with my perfect virtuous circle, which is a shame. He seems to have all of the the right ideas and it just wasn't quite paying off for him. And I dread to think, you know, the, the impact on the business. Well, actually, I've read the accounts and I can see the impact on the business and the expected impact on it. Um, he wasn't in February feeling so downhearted because he also thinks that the business model is in tune with the current zeitgeist. And I think, you know, there's sustainability, climate change, uh, the, the move away from excessive packaging, sustainable supplies, paying the living wage. That is becoming more and more important to people. So I think Lush is maybe ahead of the curve with that. And hopefully that will start to, to actually pay dividends maybe quite literally to to Mark and his wife um, and, and the staff indeed who are invested in the business but I do I do hope that they do survive I certainly will make an effort to go back into the shops having rediscovered their ethical outlook and uh, they, they've also um, described themselves as a campaigning company I noticed they, they don't do any marketing they actually spend their, their time sort of campaigning so you might be aware of some of the ones like the um, undercover policeman campaign that got a lot of backlash. And also um, they did attract some controversy over their attacks on fox hunting as well. But that seems to be just they're, they're authentic to themselves. These are the things that they think are important and they're using their campaigning brand to make these things more in the public eye. I, f I found an article that was really interesting which was in the in the big issue and i'll put a link to this um on our on our website which is the business dot community um mr constantine comes from tough roots he there was a there was a time when he was homeless living in a tent um earning just enough money to get food and clothes and he um he he got a lucky break because a friend's parents took him in and they showed him compassion, friendship and the benefit of charity. And he says that that has had a long lasting impact on him and his business. He has written a book and I can't find the title of the book, but I think I think it would be very interesting because he talks. He talks even just in this big issue um, article about some really interesting elements of his 
of his story. And the business is a family business. There's him and his wife, two sons and his daughter. Um, and they all they all work within the business and they seem to reward and recognize their staff. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, they, they are shareholders. Re a really he was a, he was a surprise to me because I didn't really know who he was. And then uh, the same with you, as, as you've said, Tracy, I'm now determined to walk into the next lush shop that I, that I would normally walk past. Uh, because I think there's much more to this business than we would first think. So that's Mark Constantine, founder of Lush, and also um, someone who pays his staff fair wages and donates a fair amount to charity as well. So that's all we've got time for this week. We do hope you join us again next week for the business community on Calan FM for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.